Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Uh, on the 1st of August 1998, I stood at the front of a crowded church wearing a, a rented suit. It was grey with tails and a cravat, dressed up to the nines with a little flower in the lapel. And uh, the congregation all stood as the wedding march played. And every eye turned to watch a beautiful bride uh, enter the room. And she processed slowly down the aisle with her father and bridesmaids traipsing behind. And every eye was on her. And she was radiant. And her name was Fiona Legg. And she was about to become Fiona Ramasamy because she was marrying my best mate, and I was the best man. Now, how did I feel about that as a single fella who went back to his flat alone that evening? (laughs) Do you know what? I was really thrilled. I was over the moon, because Jay, my great friend of more than 10 years, was getting married to a great girl. And there was a twist, because as the bride walked down the aisle, the groom who until that moment had been very composed and seemed so confident, began to weep. And I don't just mean tearing up a little bit. I mean full-on, uncontrollable sobbing. It was really quite alarming. We were wondering if he was going to be able to go through with it. What was going on? Now, more than 10 years before, Jay had heard the gospel that Pete was talking about, and he decided to follow Jesus Christ. And it caused major problems in his family, and he was rejected by his family and was kicked out. He lost, his, he lost his, his father for more than 10 years. And he'd had to sleep on people's couches for a while and he'd been rejected in his teens. And now at last he found someone who loved him and was going to commit her life to being with him. And I think for him it was just emotionally overwhelming. And during that first hymn of the wedding service, I, as the best man, was literally frantically going around the congregation trying to find someone who had a pack of tissues to get him to calm down. Because I would do anything not to see his big day spoiled. Well, thankfully, he pulled it together and uh, it went through and they're still happily married today. Now, this image of the best man and the bridegroom is the image that John the Baptist uses in our text today to talk about himself. And he calls himself the the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. And he says that the Lord Jesus Christ is the groom. And he basically says, you know what? I'm absolutely made up. I'm as pleased as punch. I couldn't be more happy because Jesus gets the girl. And there's not a hint of resentment or jealousy, because John the Baptist loves Jesus, and he's so committed to him. Now, that's very interesting, but you might be thinking, what does that have to do with you and me? Isn't this just an obscure part of a very old book? No, 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 no. When you understand what is going on here, you will see that it touches something that's at the very core, the very heart of of who you are and who, who I am. This situation and John the Baptist's response to it is very powerful. And it's powerful because it touches this one of our most important issues, a heart issue that actually affects everything else in our lives. And here it is. Whose glory are you living for? Whose glory are you living for? 
Now, some of you are thinking, I thought you said that this was going to be a heart issue that affects everything I do. But I don't go around thinking about glory and whose glory I'm living for. I'm not even sure I know what glory means. Yes, you do. Because, friends, you are glory seekers. It's the way you tick. It's the way you were made. It's hardwired into your DNA. You're a glory seeker. We all want glory. We just look for it in very different ways, and we have different ways of getting it. Glory is honor, praise, great reputation, high regard. Someone who's glorious is a special, treasured, distinctive, adorable person. If you get glory, you're thought of as someone pretty significant, quite weighty. If you have no glory, then you are basically despised or dismissed. We seek glory all the time. We seek it even in the very small things of life. We think, if I can do this, if I can win that, if I can accomplish this thing, if I can look like this, then I will be glorious. Then my life will really matter. Then I will no longer be a nobody. I will be a somebody. And that's what we really want. Let me give you a trivial illustration of this from a primary school in South Manchester. A few years ago, uh, a bunch of kids in a class were given a challenge. See who could read the most Dick King Smith books in, the ter- in one term. Dick King Smith, author of The Sheep Pig and other children's classics. Our Will read 31 books. Now, how... I don't know how you can write 31 books on a sheep pig. I'm sure he has other topics as well. 31 books. And the day before the end of the contest, he's talking to his friend at school, and the friend said, how many Dick King Smith books have you read then? And Will said, 31. And the boy, he said, how many have you read? And the boy's face fell, and he said, I've read 24. That night, his friend's parents went out and bought eight more Dick King Smith books. (laughs) And the boy read them. But Will read one more book that evening. So as they arrived at school the next day, they both read 32 books. Who's going to win? The other boy burst into tears, and the, the teacher let him win the contest. Now, that is an interesting story, isn't it? What was motivating that behavior in that dear boy? He is, by the way, a really nice kid. What was motivating that behavior in his parents? What kind of people go out and buy eight Dick King Smith books on one night? People like us, glory seekers. My child must win. By the way, I'm not putting our family on a pedestal here either, because we were really ticked off. (laughs) And we did not respond at all graciously in front of our son. We was robbed! What kind of people get really annoyed when their son gets second place in the Dick King Smith context? (laughs) People like us, glory seekers. This is so powerful because underneath this quest for glory is a deep driving ambition and a deep question. What will it take for my life to really matter? What will it take for my life to really count for something, to really matter? Friends, if we could only see how important this is to us and how it drives so much of our behavior in our lives and so much of what we feel. 
Let me try now today to put a finger into your life. I want to find a raw nerve and poke around it a bit. I want to see if you've got a sore toe and then step on it. When was the last time you got really ugly? Really unpleasant. You got really ungracious. You actually were almost vicious. When was the last time? Just think about that for a moment. And what was the cause? Now, it, might, it may well have been connected to your lust for glory and how that was being blocked. Whose glory are you living for? Now, in this passage that we just heard read, there are only two possible answers. One way gives life and the other way gives death. You're either living for the glory of self or you're living for the glory of Jesus. You're either living for the glory of self or the glory of Jesus. And you need to figure out today which one to give your life to. Because the glory of self will only bring you death. But living for the glory of Jesus will bring you life in his name. The glory of self or the glory of Jesus. First of all, the glory of self. Look with me again at this passage in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This is before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan... The one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now the unfolding story of John's gospel is focusing on Jesus. But Jesus' new public ministry is developing in a context. And in that context, John the Baptist is a major figure. So Jesus and his disciples, if you'll excuse the phrase, are the new kids on the block. And they're baptizing people now, just as John the Baptist has been doing. Now, we don't know the exact location of these places, but they're close enough. And verse 25 even seems to indicate that there's some discussion going on, some kind of comparison between John and Jesus. And arguments developing between some of John's disciples and a certain Jewish man over the matter of ceremonial washing. Well, whose baptism should we go to? Now, just pause for a moment and use your imagination here. Try and enter into the, the shoes or the sandals of John the Baptist, this great, hairy prophet living out in the wilderness. His background was one of total devotion to God from his youngest age. He's been dedicated. His diet, he eats wild locusts. Have you ever tried them? You know, the only way he could get him down was by having some honey to sweeten it a bit. He's wearing these rough clothes and a leather belt, and he's, he's obviously embodying this old-style prophet and pre preaching the Word of God out in the most uncomfortable situation. And only recently he's become a dramatic success story. He has become a somebody, a great man. Everybody's coming to hear him. He's got dedicated followers. Crowds are coming. They're coming on the bus. His words are starting to shape a nation. Even the king wanted to hear him. And he's not a man who's motivated by shallow desire for celebrity and fame. 
He wants his life to make a difference, to make an impact for the kingdom of God. That's what he's all about. And then this happens. Jesus shows up with his disciples. They set up shop just down the river. They start baptizing just like John. And they start having a bigger impact. His life's work is slipping away. And his disciples come to him and they say, look at this, verse 26. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now on its own, that could be a positive statement. They could be saying, yes, John, great. You remember that guy you you talked about? Uh, We're really positive because everyone's going to him now. But note his response. He says, look, I'm the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. He must increase. I must decrease. In other words, he must become more important. I've got to become less important. John has to tell his own team that this is how it's going to be, that this is actually good news. And I wonder what the team were feeling at this point. Is it disappointment? Our guy is being eclipsed by somebody greater They already lost a couple of players back in chapter 1 and went off and followed Jesus. Is it resentment? Could there be some jealousy and envy towards Jesus and his mission? Suddenly, the baptism industry has become a crowded marketplace and they're losing market share. Is there self-pity in here or even anger? Now, we don't know the range of emotions, but verse 26 is very revealing. This is the language of people when they feel threatened. They're threatened by a new person who's greater than their leader, and they overstate the situation. Everyone is going to him. It's not actually true. There's still people coming to John the Baptist. But that's how it looks. When you're in that kind of threatened situation, it's all so bleak. Everyone's going. It's all gone. That kind of overstatement is a dead giveaway to what's going on in our hearts. Now, can you identify with them? Can you identify with them? How would you have responded in this situation, honestly? How do you, re- do you respond when someone better than you shows up and puts you in the shade? When you lose your influence, or it diminishes. When you lose your power, you lose significance. You thought you were going to be a winner, but you ended up and also ran. You ended up on the D team. Ever been on the D team? I've been on the D team several times in my life, more than one sport. (laughs) I'm asking you these questions. I'm asking you, so I need to be honest about how these things challenge me in my own experience. Other church plants that come and want to set up near us in Manchester. You know what my first response is? Great. We need hundreds of good churches here in this city. But you know what my second response is? Fear. What if we lose people to them? What if they're better preachers than me? Or better looking? What if our work gets undermined? Now, that can be a legitimate concern because sheep stealing is dishonorable in any profession as well as shepherds. And building up one new church just by wrecking another one isn't really good strategy. But honestly, 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 underneath the surface, here's the real struggle for me. I want my life to matter. I've given this ministry my best shot for six years. If it fell apart, what does it say about me? 
It's the lure of the glory of self, the desire to be the golden one, the lust for glory, to be somebody, to be great. Now, we have to wake up to this deep, driving desire in our own hearts. So let me just ask you a few questions. If you're a worker, think about your workplace. Think about the internal competition with colleagues for attention and prestige. Think about the pressure to build your CV and make it look really good, to look good in front of the boss. Think about the temptation to lie or to bend the rules in order to win business. Think about the temptation to promote yourself and your interests above the organization and the good of the city. Is your work all about giving glory to Jesus Christ or maximizing the glory of self? What about you students here or academics? The pressure you are under to overwork and invest everything you have in your academic success. The temptations to plagiarize or cut corners or to behave selfishly to build your own work up. The danger of measuring your entire identity and self-worth in your grades. Grade idolatry. Is your academic work reflecting a desire, an over-desire to build your own glory or to give glory to the Lord Jesus? You school students up there, what's the way that you are tempted to bring glory to self? Isn't it through popularity? To be someone that everyone likes and they think you're cool? What are you giving up to try and be popular? Let me speak to parents here for a moment. The, the lure of seeing glory come to you through your own children. They must perform. They must be above average. They must be well behaved, especially at church. My word. This is where we get pushy mother syndrome. The pushy mother always hassling the school, pressing the child into endless clubs, societies, after-school activities and tutors, spending half of a week in the car driving this person from one place to the next. And then you get the Christmas letter. Little Johnny got five A stars at A-level and has secured his place at Cambridge. Kate got her grade 35 on the piano and a black belt in kung fu <laughs> and starts kindergarten next week. Jimmy is a chess grandmaster and has published a best-selling novel on the Russian Revolution. <laughs> Jenny's online derivatives trading business has now gone global. <laughs> now, is your parenting being done for the good of the child and the glory of Jesus or the glory of self? Is the stress you experience by being a parent something that's driven by the glory of Jesus? I doubt it. It's coming from the glory of you. Now, you retired people feeling a bit smug at the moment. I'm coming after you next. <laughs> Your kids have flown the nest. You can laugh at all these neurotic, young, stressed puppies. But what about you? Where does the lust for glory play out in the golden years? I asked my dad this. He's 72. He said, a preoccupation with my own legacy. How will people think of me when I'm gone? I've got more years behind me than in front of me. I know that. There's a desire, instead of being concerned about what people will think about the Lord and his glory, to think about what people will think about me and my person when I'm gone. And that can lead to an over-desire to exert yourself, to have your voice heard, to gain influence and control, to be weighty. You see, we all have to face up to this question, whose glory am I living for? 
And you can see already that what the glory of self will bring into your life. What does the glory of self bring into your life? It doesn't bring joy, freedom, life. It brings anxiety, stress, conflict, jealousy, and suspicion. It creates pushy, neurotic parents, screwed-up kids, lying, bullying, and cheating. It generates overwork and then exhaustion, debt, addiction, alcoholism, marital breakdown. It's so ugly. And you should really only say that with a Mancunian accent. It's so ugly. Now, the Bible has a category for all of those things. They all belong to a sphere called death. Death isn't just keeling over and you know, giving up the ghost. Death is all of that stuff in the Bible. Now, is that how you want to live? I don't think so. You want life. There has to be a better way. And there is. Let's look at this better way. It's exemplified by this man we, think of as, we, we know of as John the Baptist. He's not driven by the glory of self, you know. He, he's not uh, driven by that with all the ugliness that it brings. He is radiant. He's transformed because he's captivated by a better vision. He's not living for the glory of self. He's living for the glory of Jesus Christ. Just look at John's reaction to his followers. Verse 27, back there on, in the text, page 1066. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said... I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. Bless you. And now it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become Less. That's quite an answer. Verse 27, he says, look, everything we've, we have has been given to us by God. Your gifts, your talents, your opportunities, your moment in time, your day in the sunshine, it was all a gift from your heavenly Father. Verse 28, he says, guys, remember what I taught you. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm just a voice calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight his paths. Verse 29, there is a role for me in this drama, and it's not the star. It's not the leading man. It's the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I don't get the girl. I wait for the bridegroom's voice, and when I hear his voice, I'm glad I can open the door and let him in. Then most wonderfully and most sweetly, verse 30, he must become greater. I must become less. He must become more important while I become less important. Now that's where it's at. That is where you find life. Jesus Christ must increase. You and I must decrease. Now look again at the end of verse 29. What he says about his joy that joy is mine, and it is now complete. What it must feel like to say those words truly. My joy is complete. You know, I'm fulfilled. He's, so, he's satisfied. He has all this fulfillment 
of saying, my joy is complete. I could not be happier. John the Baptist sees his life's work slipping away. He sees his ministry decline and diminish. He sees his influence on the wane. He sees his legacy negligible as people flock in their crowds to Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, my joy is now complete. This is what I was made for. Now, how can a flesh and blood mortal person say something like that without a tinge of jealousy and resentment? Only because John the Baptist is a new kind of person. He's a new kind of person. The kind of person whose heart has been changed by the influence of God's Holy Spirit giving him new birth. Last week, we we thought about Jesus' teaching to a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus came with all sorts of questions and observations, and Jesus said, you know what, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Nicodemus is like, what? What do you mean? Jesus says, look, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You're given new birth by God's Spirit coming to you and changing you. And this new birth is spiritual. It comes from above. It comes from God. And it can only happen if the living God comes to you and changes you on the inside. So you see what's happening right now in this section? It's showing us this is what a born-again person looks like. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. You stop being driven by the glory of self. You stop being captivated by the glory of Jesus. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. We still carry residual sin with us. It's like a virus on your hard drive. It takes a while for it to disappear. In fact, it only disappears in, in heaven. But we're, we should be tra- being transformed gradually. How do you get there? It starts by listening to the voice of Jesus. Verse 32. This is about Jesus. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. But whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. You see, when you listen to the words of Jesus... You listen to his voice in the Bible. You you read about his character. You you study his teaching. And you're confronted not just with um, ideas, not just with teaching, but you're actually confronted with a person who comes out of the pages of Scripture and speaks to you. This Bible is living and active. It describes itself as a double-edged sword, a really sharp sword on both sides. It can pierce and penetrate right into the heart and separate down right into your spirit and divide you and show you what you're really like. It's living and powerful if you'll let it be. And when you read it, sometimes it, it beams out of you. It's like it goes radioactive and it starts to change and shrink your tumors and change you because it's God's word. It's God speaking to you because his spirit, who first of all inspired it, starts to speak directly to you. And you know, that should happen while you're listening to preaching as well. Not because of me, but because God has ordained that when the word is preached, he will speak. It should be happening to you now. In verses 34 and 35, John says, The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now this then faces us with a very stark choice. Very stark. And I'm not going to um, soft pedal it. It says here that if you believe in Jesus, you receive eternal life. But if you reject him, you will not see life. 
God's wrath remains on you. God's wrath, his anger. Now, we shouldn't think of God's anger as being like our anger. We flare up, we get, have a rage, we have a tantrum, you know, we then calm down again. God's anger isn't like that. His anger is permanent. It is settled, heavy. God is fiercely and in a self-controlled way opposed to everything that undermines his glory. He's opposed and deeply offended by everything that is sinful, including sinners like us. And God is fiercely, fiercely angry and opposed to all injustice in his world, including the injustice that we do. And God is fiercely, fiercely angry and opposed to anyone who defaces his greatest creation, human beings. So you see, if you're living for the glory of self, you're actually a vandal. You're a graffiti artist. You're defacing and degrading the image of God himself because you're living for self, not him. And you know what? If you are not a lover of God this morning, if you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you are already experiencing the beginnings of God's wrath. When you're in your darkest place, when you get really ugly, when those symptoms come out of your heart, That is the beginnings of what it's like to experience God's wrath. So let me plead with you to turn away from self and turn away from that obsession with your own glory and and plead with you to accept and to pursue Jesus Christ as your only hope and your only comfort. Will you let your heart be captivated by a better vision, the glory of Jesus? Will you reorientate your existence around him? He must increase. I must decrease. Because then, and only then, will you actually be able to say, my joy is complete. Then and only then will you be as free and as fulfilled and as joyful as John the Baptist was. William Carey was a legendary 19th century missionary, social activist, and linguist. He sailed from Britain to India in 1792, and he never came back. He spent the rest of his days there. He gave his life to that great subcontinent. What did William Carey and his organization achieve? In 1993, a group of Indian scholars at a university in India published a book assessing the legacy of William Carey. Here are some of the things that they noted. He published the first books on science and natural history in India, and he founded its first university. He founded the Agri-Horticultural Society, and he campaigned for agriculture reform. He introduced a steam engine to India and was the first to make paper for its publishing industry. He encouraged Indian blacksmiths to make copies of his engine using local materials. He brought the modern science of printing and publishing and built the largest press in India. He established the first newspaper ever printed in an oriental language. It was called The Friend of India, and it paved the way for the social reform movement in India in the first half of the 19th century. He was the first to campaign for the humane treatment of India's leprosy sufferers. Until his time, leprosy patients were sometimes buried or burned alive. He crusaded for women's rights. He conducted research and published reports that helped influence the government to ban sati, the practice of burning widows alive with their dead husbands. His organization founded several hundred schools and encouraged the education of girls, which was hitherto unknown. He was a forest conservationist 
a public servant, a moral reformer, a professor of oriental languages, a preserver of indigenous culture. He translated the Hindu poem Ramayana into uh, another language. He was an agent of cultural transformation, not to mention his day job, which was overseeing translations of the Bible into six languages and partial translations into 29 more. He published grammars in seven Indian languages and the compiled dictionaries in Bengali, Sanskrit, and Marathi. The great William Wilberforce commended Carey in London in the House of Commons. And when he heard about it, Carey said, I wish people would let me die before they praise me. He learned that people in England were starting to, to collect crockery from his childhood and relics from his early life and make him into a kind of hero. And he responded, the less said about me, the better. Most striking of all, his words to Alexander Duff, who visited Carey during his final days. He was ill. On one of the last occasions on which Duff saw him, if not the very last, he spent some time talking with him about Carey's missionary life and his achievements, until at length the dying man whispered, pray. Duff knelt down and prayed, and then he said goodbye. And as he passed from the room, he thought he heard a feeble voice pronouncing his name, and turning, he found that he was being called back. He stepped back, and this is what he heard, spoken with a gracious solemnity. Mr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's saviour. You see, William Carey got it. John the Baptist got it. He must increase. I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. And then you know what? You'll be given life in his name. Shall we pray? The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Gracious Lord and Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. You have met with us in the singing, in the scriptures, in the testimony, in each other's faces, and in your word. We pray that uh, you would now do that work through this word that only you will can, because you are sovereign. We pray that you would change our hearts that you would bind up those that are brokenhearted and encourage those that are weak, that you would call back the ones that are sliding away and that you would speak now to those who are far from you and bring them to know you personally, to give them that life eternal that comes from faith in Jesus, to rescue them from the wrath to come. Father, please hear our prayer. We ask it in his name, which we know is strong. And therefore, we're confident that you will answer. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.